Well, good morning. Um, I was at, uh, I'm a Presbyterian, as you know, and we're dull people, but I was at uh, Presbytery, which is a meeting of the dull people in a certain geographic area. And you don't know how true that was yesterday. Um, and so we love, uh, the, uh, we love to use Robert's rules. And uh, so there's these, you know, when we rise, we have to say why we're rising and all that good stuff. One of them is a point of personal privilege. I've got a point of personal privilege I like to, to say. So a point of personal privilege this morning. Um, thank you guys uh, for the last three weeks. Um, appreciate your support. Appreciate you being here. Uh, it's been wonderful to be with you. Uh, Jonathan will be back next week. Is Jonathan here? Jonathan. I'm right. You'll be back next week, right? All right. We're, we're excited about that. What now? Both services. both services. He'll be both services next week. So uh, it's been wonderful to be with you uh, to go through this, um, this very short letter to Philemon. Um, was sick this week, so appreciate your prayers. Um, Bruce, uh, Bruce Lowe offered, you know, hey, he said, I've, I've preached a sermon on Philemon. Happy to step in and as awesome as that sounded to me, like my obsessive compulsiveness, I had to finish the last part, um, so I couldn't leave you hanging on your transform challenged and, okay, you don't know what the last one's going to really be. So, um, Well, this morning we're going to be in Philemon 1, 17 through 25, uh, 17 through 25. So if you consider me your partner, receive him as you would receive me. If he has wronged you at all or owes you anything, charge that to my account. I, Paul, write this with my own hand. I will repay it to say nothing of your owing me, even your own self. Yes, brother, I want some benefit from you in the Lord. Refresh my heart in Christ. Confident of your obedience, I write to you, knowing that you will do even more than I say. At the same time, prepare a guest room for me, for I am hoping that through your prayers I will be graciously given to you. Epaphras, my fellow prisoner in Christ Jesus, sends his greetings to you. And so do Mark, Aristarchus, Demas, and Luke, my fellow worker. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with you, be with your spirit. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, um, as we come to this last part, as we come to uh, an understanding of what it means to be compelled by the gospel, Father, give us that sense of our own story. Father, where we've come from, what you've done for us, how great of of the sins that you forgave for us as we consider what this all means to us and how we're to reach others. Father, may your Holy Spirit illumine our hearts. May he turn that flashlight of truth on the the parts of our heart where, where we're not really considering that truth. And may we also be compelled, as Philemon apparently was compelled by this letter from Paul. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Well, we started this series talking about how the currency of common faith, uh, our koinonia, is made effective and it's empowered. And that koinonia results in lives that understand the depths of redemption, uh, their lives being transformed by the Holy Spirit who because of the grace in the Lord Jesus Christ are transformed by faith, challenged by the Lord, and as we see today, compelled by the gospel. As Paul says in 1 Corinthians 5, 14 through 15, for the love of Christ compels us because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, 
that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. Let me tell a, a very, very personal story from my own life. I was 17 years old when I came to know the Lord. And um, I was in a very broken place in my life. My parents were in the middle of a very brutal, raw, angry divorce. And my sister and I were caught in the middle. My sister kind of retreated into her own world. I was the one that wanted to get into the middle of it. And I got beat up routinely. When I came to know Christ, it was at a point in my life where I really didn't see much of a future in my life. I don't know if you've ever, ever had that in your own life where, where you could look ahead and, and there wasn't really much ahead. That was me. So when Christ came into my life, when, when, when I really was, was redeemed and understood, it began to transform how I related to other people. And I remember one night, and especially how I related to my parents, and I remember one night getting into a long, horrible <laughs> fight with my mother. Because what my mother wanted me to do is to hate my father. Because he was accused of doing several things, which I will not bring up here. And she said, you know he's going to steal your future. He's going to steal our money. And you will not survive. And I said, I am called to reach, to reach out to him. To show him the gospel. And she couldn't understand it. I mean, to say that she was seething is just really scratching the surface of the kind of emotion that was coming off of her. And I can understand where she was coming from. She was desperately hurt by my father. But I knew, even at that very young age, that I had to reach him as much as I had to reach her. Once we have experienced the transformation that we have in Christ, we want other people to experience that transformation. The gospel compels us, but sometimes we get stuck. Sometimes we're happy to extend the gospel to some, but not to others. We're happy to edify some, but not others. We're happy to forgive some, but not others. But, but it's when we remember the reality of the gospel in our own lives that we weren't worthy of salvation, but Christ made us worthy. That compels us, it propels us to get over whatever is in us in order to live out the gospel in our own lives. Paul sees that Philemon is in, a, in, in that place, he's stuck. There's some areas where he's doing really well, we've seen that. But he's not extending the gospel to Onesimus, and perhaps those like him. And so in his challenge, we see the gospel is compelling us in three ways. The gospel compels us first to receive others as we would receive Christ. Second, to forgive others because we have been forgiven. And third, to edify one another as Christ edifies us. Let's look at the first. To receive others 
as Christ would receive us. Look at verse 17. So if you consider me your partner, receive him as you would receive me. And before we get into that word receive part, let's look at the word partner. What does that mean? Well, it's, it's from that same Greek word we've been talking about where we get koinonia, partner. It's rooted in that Greek word koinonia. Paul's basically saying if you agree that you and I are partners in the faith, receive him as if you're receiving me. Even though you aren't sure of Onesimus' profession, receive him as you receive me. Can you imagine what it's like for Paul to write these words? I mean, let's remember who he was. I mean, I think that sometimes we forget. He was the persecutor of the church. And when the call came, when the call came from the Lord to Ananias, and he said, hey, I'm sending you Saul. And he's like, what? What do you mean you're sending me Saul? Wait a minute. This has got to be a different Saul than the Saul I'm, I'm hearing about. Saul of Tarsus? I mean, the guy who's persecuting the church. Really? And he was told to receive him. Can you imagine what the church would be if, if Ananias had not been obedient to the Lord and received Paul? Prayed for him. Received him as a brother. After all he had done, Paul was not in human terms, worthy to be received into the church. Yet that's what the gospel is all about. Paul is saying, receive him as you would receive me. Now, you might say, wait a minute, that's not receiving as Christ would receive. But that. Paul writes, be imitators of me as I am of Christ in 1 Corinthians 1.11. He makes it clear that Christ is the one we should be imitating. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering and a sacrifice. And though he's telling Philemon to receive him as you would receive me, he also writes in Romans 15, 5 through 7, this as reference. May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another in accord with Christ Jesus that together you may with one voice Glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. Therefore, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. Receive him as you would receive me. The concept is rooted in the gospel. Whatever baggage is there, whatever um, emotional or social or political issue may be a barrier between the person that's coming to Christ and the person receiving them, that does not need to be a barrier. Whatever socioeconomic reality was keeping Philemon from recognizing that Onesimus could come to Christ needed not to be there. There are people, there are not people who are lower-class Christians or lower-level Christians. This theme is repeated over and over again by Jesus in the Gospels as he attempts to teach the very ethnocentric people that salvation is meant for the Gentiles and always has been since the call of Abraham. To Abraham, he said, I will bless the nations through you. They were never meant to keep it to themselves. We're kind of a keep-it-to-ourselves people in our flesh. 
And you see, in Jesus' interactions with the woman at the, woman at the well, she, she wasn't just looked down upon as a Samaritan. She was looked down upon because of her life. And yet Jesus offers her living water. Jesus tells the story of the Good Samaritan, which would have been an oxymoron. Good Samaritan? Okay, Jesus. Those two things don't go together. But he used that story to answer the question, who is my neighbor? It is pointedly the Samaritan leper who is healed, who returns to glorify and give thanks to Jesus. The message is that we are to receive the people that God receives, not create particular categories of Christians. More on that in a second. But one of the most interesting illustrations of this in, in Scripture is Peter and Cornelius. Cornelius was a Gentile believer, and the Jews weren't quite sure that the gospel was really for them, that they were meant to be part of the community. And so Peter has this vision of the unclean animals coming down in the sheet, if you remember. And, and Jesus says, rise, Peter, kill, and eat. And, and Peter's like, I, I don't need anything unclean. And Jesus says, don't call anything unclean that which I've made clean. Something we should remember. And he gets the, the reality when he goes to Cornelius' family. Interestingly, this all took place near Joppa. God has an incredible sense of humor. All this took place near Joppa. You remember where Joppa is, right? It's where Nineveh, uh, it's where, I'm sorry, it's where, where um, Jonah tried to get on a boat to flee God's call to go to Nineveh because he didn't really want to preach to those guys because he didn't want to see them repent. We talked about that last week. And so all this is happening around here. Well, Cornelius' family receives the gospel. The, the Holy Spirit falls on them. And he turns, to, he turns to the Jews and he's like, what am I supposed to do here? Peter says this, when he sees the conversion of Cornelius' family, he says, Now I realize how true it is that God does not show favoritism, but accepts from every nation the one who fears him and does what is right. You know the message God sent to the people of Israel, announcing the good news of peace through Jesus Christ, who is Lord of all. So the Holy Spirit falls on Cornelius and his family. Peter turns to the Jewish Christians who were with him and says, Surely no one can stand in the way of their being baptized with water. They have received the Holy Spirit just as we have. Don't call anything unclean that I've made clean. In other words, receive them into the fold. Receive them as you would receive me. Anything you've done for the least of these, as Jesus would say elsewhere, you've done for me. Okay, I said more on that in a second. Sometimes we categorize, categorize Christians, don't we? I'm not talking about those who may call themselves Christians and are not Christians. I'm, I'm just talking about Christians who are different from us for whatever reason. For example, areas of Christian liberty. My kid goes to a public school. My kid goes to a Christian school. My kid goes, is, is homeschooled. And we kind of love to build little, little factions around that, don't we? And it's like, okay, you're, you're, I'm, I'm not sure I'm going to receive you. Like, you're not in my group. And we do that with a lot of things, legitimate areas of liberty. And notice I said legitimate areas of liberty. There are things that, that should be necessarily challenged, but 
there are things where the Holy Spirit is leading and guiding us in those truths. Areas of conscience where we tend to build factions rather than unity. Now, I'm not saying that there aren't areas of liberty that, that somewhere, someone can't grow in. Of course there are. We all have areas where we need to grow, but the message is clear when it comes to brothers and sisters in Christ. We are to receive them, not just put up with them, but receive them as Christ received us, welcome them as Christ welcomed us. Why? Because the gospel compels us. Whatever we have against someone, we've got to remember. We've got to remember who we are and that Christ received us. And if he can receive us, there's no one the gospel can't reach. There's no barrier that the gospel can't bring down. Which leads to the second way the gospel compels us. Forgive others because we have been forgiven. This is where it gets tougher. Receiving someone is one thing. Forgiving them, that's another. Look at verses 18 and 19. If he has wronged you at all or owes you anything, charge that to my account. I, Paul, write this with my own hand. I will repay it to say nothing of you owing me even your own self. Paul is asking Philemon to forgive Onesimus of whatever grievance he has against him. Not because he deserves it. He's asking him to forgive Onesimus because someone else has paid for it. And he's hoping he gets the illustration there. Look, you owe me your very self. Well, if he hasn't really personally met Paul, how does he owe him anything? Well, Epaphras, the name of the guy that comes at the end of this epistle, is the guy who was compelled by the gospel because of the preaching of Paul to go back to his hometown of Colossae and preach the gospel to the people there through which Philemon was converted. And if it hadn't been for the preaching of Paul, Epaphras wouldn't have been converted. If Epaphras hadn't been converted, Philemon wouldn't have been converted. He owes him his very life. Ultimately, he owes Christ his very life. He's asking him to receive, ultimately, Onesimus as he would receive Christ, but forgive him for the sake of Christ. In the epistle of Colossians, ironically, which Onesimus is probably standing there holding in his hand, it says this, Bear with one another, and forgive one another. If any of you has a grievance against someone, forgive as the Lord forgave you. Forgiveness is the core of the gospel. It's a hallmark of our faith. As the world gets progressively darker and drifts from its Judeo-Christian ethos that sort of permeates culture, we're losing the sense of forgiveness. And the new social morality, if you mess up, you're canceled forever. We won't forgive you. If we dig up an indiscretion from your past that somehow made it on video, and thankfully videos weren't, weren't really around a whole lot when I was younger, because I'd be canceled forever. Anyway, we're not going to forgive this. That's what the world says. I urge us as the church not to participate in that kind of thing. Because we can very easily become the cancel people ourselves. And once we do, believe that there's no room for forgiveness in that situation. 
That is not the faith that we received. That is not the gospel. C.S. Lewis commented on this very thing in The Weight of Glory. He says, to be Christian means to forgive the inexcusable because God has forgiven the inexcusable in you. This is hard. It is perhaps not so hard to forgive a single great injury, but to forgive the incessant provocations of daily life. To keep on forgiving the bossy mother-in-law, the bullying husband, the nagging wife, the selfish daughter, the deceitful son, how can we do it? Only, I think, by remembering where we stand, by meaning our words when we say in our prayers each night, forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. We are offered forgiveness on no other terms. To refuse it is to refuse God's mercy for ourselves. There is no hint of exceptions, and God means what he says. And I would add to what C.S. Lewis says here a couple things. Forgiveness runs counter to our sin nature. If our sin nature is focused on itself, then naturally we're going to be resistant to forgiving others. Forgiveness is deeply embedded in our new nature, in our union with Christ and the Holy Spirit. And he can appropriate the ability within us to forgive. We don't have that sort of power apart from Christ. We can tolerate or look over offenses, but we cannot forgive because that's deep-seated. I think an one of the best illustrations of this I have ever seen is in the life of Corey Ten Boom. Some of you know her story. She was a Christian who was helping Jews during uh, Nazi, the, the time of, of uh, Nazi Germany's um, dominance of Europe, and she and her sister both were sent to Ravensbrück camp, and her sister, sister Betsy died there. Following the war, she toured churches and started teaching about forgiveness. And one of the former guards, one of the cruel guards from that camp, approached her after her talk, and she wrote these words. I'm going to read her words because they're so powerful. And there he was. Now he was in front of me, hand thrust out, a fine message for a line. How good it is to know that, as you say, all our sins are at the bottom of the sea. And I, who had spoken so glibly of forgiveness, fumbled in my pocketbook. Rather than to take that hand. He would not remember me, of course. How could he remember one prisoner among those of, uh, of thousands of women? But I remembered him. the leather crop swinging from his belt. It was the first time since my release that I had been face to face with one of my captors, and my blood seemed to freeze. You mentioned Ravensbrook in your talk, he, he, he was saying. I was a guard there. No, he did not remember me. But since that time, he went on, I have become a Christian. I know that God has forgiven me for the cruel things I did there. But I'd like to hear it from your lips as well, Fraulein. Again, the hand came out, will you forgive me? And I stood there. I, whose sins had every day to be forgiven, and I could not. Betsy had died in that place. 
Could he erase her slow, terrible death simply for the asking? It could have been many seconds that he stood there, hand held out, but to me it seemed hours as I wrestled with the most difficult thing I'd ever had to do. Those who were able to forgive their former enemies were able to also return to the outside world and rebuild their lives, no matter what the physical scars. Those who nursed their bitterness remained invalids. It was as simple and as horrible as that. And still I stood there with a coldness clutching my heart. But forgiveness is not an emotion, and I knew that too well. Forgiveness is an act of the will. And the will can function regardless of the temperature of the heart. Jesus, help me, I prayed silently. I can lift my hand. I can do that much. You supply the feeling. And so woodenly, mechanically, I thrust my hand into the the one stretched out to me. And as I did, an incredible thing took place. The current started in my shoulder and raced down my arm and sprang into our joined hands. And then this healing warmth seemed to flood my whole being, bringing tears to my eyes. I forgive you. Brother, I cried. With all my heart. For a long moment, we grasped each other's hands, the former guard and the former prisoner. And I had never known God's love so intensely as I did then. Two things we see here in this interaction. Forgiveness is an aspect of the will, and without Christ's help, our will remains reticent. Forgiveness does not free the soul of the one being forgiven, only it forgives the soul of the one doing forgiving. These two men, Philemon and Onesimus, had a deep-seated anger towards one another. But Paul urges Philemon to forgive Onesimus, not by compulsion, but by reaching into that faith that prompted Philemon's koinonia in in the first place, the faith that prompted the sharing of his home, the faith that refreshed the hearts of so many saints. And let's not forget that the name of Mark is listed here at the end of this epistle. Paul and Mark had their own beef with each other. There was such an intense disagreement about how to do things and Mark's ability to do things that they separated. Barnabas took, uh, took Mark and they went a different direction for a season. And yet here they are reunited. The gospel's done a work in them as well. Forgiveness is hard. We have people in our lives who've hurt us, some deeply wronged us, some deeply neglected us, some, deep, some profoundly. So don't hear me say, with any glibness that forgiveness is easy or simple. It is not. But it is resourced in Christ, and Christ can do exceedingly and abundantly more than we can ask or imagine. Which brings us to the third and final point. The gospel compels us to edify one another as Christ edifies us. In the gospel, God calls us what we are not yet. Saints. Cleaned. We are cleaned in Christ, but one day we will be fully glorified. Holy ones, righteous people, particularly wholesome and virtuous people. But the gospel has the audacity to call the unholy, unrighteous people saints. Because of what what Christ is doing in us. In calling us saints, Christ is building us up, edifying us, with the truth of eternal standing before God, just like he came to Gideon and says, man of mighty valor, 
or he calls Peter the rock. He's calling us what we are not yet because he's going to make us into that thing. And that's Paul's confidence in this situation. His confidence is not in Philemon's flesh. His confidence is in the spirit who is in Philemon. As John said, the same spirit that raised Jesus from the dead is within us. And that is the confidence that Paul has. It's the same word this, this, in, in verses 20 and 21, he says, Confident of your obedience, I write this to you, knowing that you will do even more than I say. At the same time, prepare a guest room for me, for I am hoping that through your prayers I will be graciously given to you. His hope is in the power of Christ. The same hope that Paul has to be released from prison, he has hope. Because that power is in Philemon. That word confident is the same one from Philippians, Philippians 1.6. that says, and I am confident of this that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Christ Jesus. Paul's confident in the work of the Lord on Philemon that he's going to do this thing, that he will receive this well. Edifying is being able to, to look into someone's life and see where God is working and build them up in that and say, I see where God is changing you. And we all need that. We all need that. Because our own heart, if we truly know Christ, we feel the guilt of, 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 of our sin every day. To have a brother come to us and say, or a sister come to us and say, this is where I see the Lord working in you. It causes us to persevere. Even when we're struggling, and this is what, this is what Paul's doing in the life of Philemon. He's saying, look, you're messed up in this area, but look, you're refreshing the hearts of the saints. And then he turns and he says, refresh my heart. Onesimus is my heart. Refresh him. Receive him as you would receive me. Paul is essentially saying, Philemon, I see the work of the Spirit in you and how you refresh the hearts of your saints and how you love them. It is your reputation. And I want to honor that in you because that's the Spirit of God working in you. But as I send Philemon back to you, I mean, as I, as I send Onesimus back to you, Philemon, it is now time for the Spirit of God to do the same thing for our brother Onesimus. Edify him as I edify you. Receive him as I receive you. Forgive him as you were forgiven. Brothers and sisters in Christ, whatever it is that you're facing, Christ can accomplish it through you. I, with Paul, am confident that he who began a good work in us will be faithful to complete it. We may struggle with flesh within and fears without, but Christ can do exceedingly more. Some say we don't know how Philemon received this. I think we do know how Philemon received this. It wasn't immediately torn up and thrown into the trash, right? This is a personal letter, and we have a personal letter in the Bible because it was probably a landmark letter in which the Colossians saw the gospel at work lived out in front of them. Not just some esoteric theology, but a lived out theology. They saw that it was real. And if there's anything that the world needs to see is they need to see the gospel is real. That what we believe makes a difference. Such was the life of John Newton. 
John Newton, upon his conversion to Christianity after a fierce storm at sea, didn't give up the slave trade immediately. It took some time for his faith to transform and challenge him and compel him to eventually work as an abolitionist. But it, worked on, it did work on him, and it drove him to the foot of the cross, and it drove him to the study of ministry. And ultimately, along with William Wilberforce, he worked with him to abolish the slave trade in England. Newton at one point wrote this, May we sit at the foot of the cross and there learn what sin has done, what justice has done, and what love has done. And that he did. And it transformed him, it challenged him, and it compelled him. Paul, in essence, brings Philemon back to the foot of the cross for the same reason. The Holy Spirit within us does the same. He shows us what justice has done, what our sin has done, what justice has done, and what love has done. And he compels us by the gospel to show us grace and to show that grace to others. So that with Newton, we might also say this. There are only two things of which I am sure. One is that I am a miserable sinner. And the other that Christ is an all-sufficient Savior. If there's nothing you've heard over the last three weeks, hear that. That is the testimony of Philemon, of Paul's letter. We are miserable sinners, but Christ is an all-sufficient Savior. And he can work in us to change us, to bring wholeness, to bring healing, and to bring others who are far from him, to him. If we dare, if we dare to truly be compelled to believe that the gospel will do what Christ says it will do and reach the very people we don't think will ever come to know Christ. May we be challenged by that. May we be transformed. May we be compelled by the gospel in our lives. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, make it real. We know these things. This is, there's nothing new here. There's nothing new here. We know the truths, who you are, what Christ came to do, what we've been saved from. It is our will that needs to be changed, and we cannot change that. Only you can. And so that's what we're asking you to do this morning, Lord. Change our hearts toward one another. Change our hearts towards who we know needs to receive the gospel. Make us instruments of peace. Help us to be the hands and feet of, the God, of Christ in the world. Make it so real that the people of the world see the realness of our faith over and against everything, every other belief in this world that we have living water and we have true life. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.